This interview was recorded pre-COVID-19 at a fundraiser for the Innocence Project in front of a live studio audience. It was July 1996. While on leave from his job as a river barge deckhand, 22-year-old Damon Thibodeau visited his relatives, the Champagnes. Around noon on July 19th, their 14-year-old daughter, Damon's step-cousin, Crystal, walked to a nearby grocery store and never came back. Damon joined what eventually became the entire neighborhood on a frenzied search for Crystal that lasted through the night and into the next day. When he returned home for some much-needed sleep, the sheriff came knocking at the door. Inexplicably, Damon had become a suspect in what would turn into a rape and homicide investigation when they found Crystal's partially nude body strangled to death with a red extension cord. Damon maintained his innocence, agreeing to a polygraph which interrogators would tell him he had failed. Now, if you've listened to our series about false confessions with Laura Nyrider and Steve Drizzen, a lot of the elements of Damon's story will sound familiar. The polygraph ploy, the false-fed facts, followed by a false confession, in this case, to the rape and murder of an underage family member. Even with no physical evidence connecting him to the crime, the wild disparity between his confession to her rape and the fact that she hadn't been raped at all, among a host of other inconsistencies, Damon Thibodeau was nevertheless convicted and sentenced to death. With the help of the Innocence Project, DNA testing, and a surprisingly cooperative district attorney, Damon was exonerated on September 28, 2012. This is Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Hi, listener. I'm Carol Fisher, the host of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister. I'm so excited for you to hear the brand new season where we're uncovering a 35-year-old mystery. But for those of you who didn't hear season one or just want to listen to it again, you can now get access to all episodes of that first season of The Girlfriends 100% ad-free through the iHeart True Crime Plus subscription, which is available exclusively on Apple Podcasts. 
You'll also get access to every single episode of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, ad-free and one week early, only available to iHeart True Crime Plus subscribers. So what are you waiting for? Head to Apple Podcasts, search for iHeart True Crime Plus, and subscribe today. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. Today's episode is a very interesting one. We're recording in front of a live audience, but... Today's particularly special because I have Vanessa Potkin, who was the first staff attorney at the Innocence Project and is a senior staff attorney now and has been on the show before. So, Vanessa, welcome back. It's great to be back. And with Vanessa is Damon Thibodeau, who was sentenced to death for a brutal crime that we now know he didn't commit. So, Damon, as I always say, uh, I'm glad you're here, but I'm sorry you're here. Thanks for inviting me, Jason. Um, Let's go back to the time that all this stuff happened. Um, You were 22 years old, and what was your life like? You were from Louisiana, right? I am from Louisiana. Um, Spent most of my time in Texas. I had moved back to Louisiana, and I got a job as a deckhand working offshore. Just got my job. You know, I was uh, three weeks into the job, took some shore leave to pay some bills, things like that. And And your step-cousin disappeared, right? Yes. I was... um, Sitting at the dining room table, her father was sitting across from me. He left to go do something. I was working on his watch. He couldn't put the band on, so I said, I'll put it on for you. And uh, she asked me to take her to the store. I told her I couldn't do it without your parents' permission. And uh, she said, no, I need you to take me now. And I said, no, I can't do it. And she left. And uh, that was the last time I saw her. Wow. What time was that, more or less? Just afternoon, I believe. Right. And she was 14, right? Yes. And so that was noon. When did you start to become concerned, and how did the whole thing unfold, and how did you find out that she was missing, and when did the search start? I mean, we want to know everything. Well, her mother was the one who started to panic. Around what time? Uh, Maybe 2, 3 o'clock. She started making calls to try to find out where she is because she had never done anything like this before. She'd never disappeared like that. You know, she started calling people to help her look for her and offered to help her out, you know, drive them around the neighborhoods and help them look for her. So how many people went out? I mean, I'm, I'm envisioning like a large group like you see on TV, a whole... It's like, the whole neighborhood. They had the uh, Coast Guard helicopter there as well by nightfall, flying around the neighborhood with their light, trying to f- help the search teams in, in the wooded areas. And they had fire trucks out there with all their lights and the police were out there. And there was a wooded area behind the apartment complex where they lived and everybody in the neighborhood just went walking through it. And it was like almost side by side. We had all driven around the neighborhood, some of the places that she'd hang out in, some of the friends that she would hang out with. None of them had seen her. After searching all night long and having been up for the previous 35 hours as well, Damon finally went home, planning to rejoin the search after getting some much needed rest. But just as he was about to lay down, there's a knock at the door. It's the police. Damon wants to help in any way he can, so he agrees to go with them. But while at the police station, everything would change. I was in the interrogation room when they found the body. So they had already identified you as a suspect? Yes. Why you? I still don't know to this day. Do you have any theories on that, Vanessa? The state's theory was that 
his cousin goes missing. She walks out to the store. She's going to the Winn-Dixie. And when her mother starts to worry about her about an hour later and there's a search party, that Damon actually leaves the house and encounters her. And it's at that point that he decides to, you know, have sex with her and kill her. And, and then comes back, you know, to be seen and to be part of the search party. So it, it never really added up. Uh, but they did, you know, take him into custody and start interrogating him. And initially they were interrogating him about a missing person, right? And then during that questioning, her body's found. And so it turns into an interrogation about what happened to this girl who's missing to now you're a suspect in a homicide. And when she was found, the initial thought was that she had been sexually assaulted. That's correct. Because she was partially nude and she had been strangled with a cord, right? An electrical cord. Yeah. And so they interrogated you for almost half a day Mm -hmm. on no sleep and they can and they did play all sorts of dirty tricks in the interrogation room Um, in america unlike england and many other countries they can lie to you in the interrogation room as much as they want they're they are allowed to lie to you yeah and they did Um, they gave you a fake polygraph test among other things Um, there's a thing actually was developed in chicago uh, about 50 years ago, right? The Reed Technique, which is a psychological protocol that's designed to elicit confessions, be they false or true. So what what happened in the interrogation, Vanessa? Because you've studied this. Obviously, you worked on the case and you got him out. I mean, 15 years in death row, and but he's here. He's not dead, which is great. Right. Um, in essence, Project worked on the case. You know, it was a huge monumental effort to get to the point where Damon was released. When we looked at the confession evidence, um, you know, Damon was brought in and he is, you know, interrogated under, as you pointed out, less than ideal circumstances. You know, the night before she went missing, he had been out um, hanging out with friends and so he didn't get a lot of sleep. And then, of course, she goes missing and there's a search party and so he's not getting sleep that night either. And then the following day, he's, you know, after about 35 hours of being up, he's brought in and interrogated. And for the first five hours, Damon is adamant about his innocence, right? You brought up the Reed technique. And, you know, in the U.S., we went from a time where it was permissible to beat confessions out of people. And then we became more enlightened and said, no, you can't physically coerce the confession. But that coercion turned to mental coercion. And so the Reed technique really is about using different coercive techniques to elicit a confession. And Many times it is an accurate confession, and a lot of times it also works so well that it will get people who are completely innocent to confess. So for the first five hours, Damon is saying, I'm innocent, I had nothing to do with this, but part of the read technique is to not accept the denial. So when uh, you know the suspect denies that they were involved, they keep saying, we know you're lying, and they will not accept innocence as an answer. So they did that to Damon, and then ultimately they told him, the only way you can prove your innocence is for you to take a polygraph. So he agrees, right? But the polygraph, as you pointed out, Jason, was a sham, and it was really a ploy just to advance the interrogation. And so he takes what he believes to be a polygraph, um, and they come back and they say, you failed, and we now know you're lying because you failed. So hearing that you know you failed, and if you have any belief in a polygraph test and you're 22, you know they keep questioning him, how could this happen? And ultimately you know, get him to say, well, I had a dream. And in a dream, you know, I saw my cousin who was killed or I saw a girl who was killed. And then ultimately, you know, they keep questioning him. And, you know, what we've seen in so many false confession cases is that through questioning with leading questions, 
details of the crime are conveyed that then under pressure when you know somebody like Damon nine ten hours into the interrogation just has had enough and feels their only way out is to give the police what they want they incorporate those details that now have been you know either consciously or unconsciously conveyed to them by the detectives who are asking the questions and so ultimately he gives a statement but as we you know would would come to learn looking at the statement many of the details that he gave about the crime matched what the police believed to be true at the time they were doing the interrogation but later turned out to be details that were inconsistent with the known facts of the crime right they're feeding him information but it's not even the right information all he's doing is repeating what they're saying to him and if we know that a false confession is the worst possible thing in the eyes of a jury Uh, they don't know it's false obviously and what i've seen is that False confessions typically happen after long, long interrogations like yours because someone who's guilty would prefer not to sit in there in that airless room that we've all seen on TV for hours and hours on end in a very hostile environment with no food and no drink and no nothing, so they might as well just spit it out. I mean, it's it's just incredible. Innocence is actually a risk factor for making a false confession because an innocent person under that pressure feels like, let me just give them what they want to hear. And once I get out of here, the system is going to work and it's going to sort itself out and people are going to realize that, you know, as they further investigate, as they do their police work that they should do, they're going to see that they got the wrong person. And here, in addition to, you know, telling Damon that he failed a polygraph, they also threatened him and said, look, if you don't admit this, you know, there's going to be a media circus and you're going to be branded, you know, a pedophile and you're going to die by lethal injection. Of course, by confessing, you know, he didn't save himself from the death penalty because that's exactly what he got. And we know also that they interrogated you, Damon, for nine hours, but they only recorded 54 minutes of it, right? So we know how that works too, right? They left all the the nefarious stuff out. Well, the polygraph came up missing as well. They can't find it. They don't. No one knows where it's at. But this was the premise for them to keep going with their investigation. The police used the polygraph as a ploy to coerce Damon's false confession to having raped, beaten, and strangled Crystal with a white or gray speaker wire from his car. However, the victim was strangled with a red extension cord. He also said that he ejaculated both in and on the victim, but the medical examiner found no semen whatsoever and that she hadn't even been raped. Given these inconsistencies, prosecutors got very creative to salvage their case. So basically in the confession statement, they had Damon saying that he, you know, had sex with the victim and ejaculated on her stomach and inside of her. But as Jason said, there was no semen evidence recovered. And so, uh, you know, as wrongful convictions go, you know, a detective takes the stand and is asked, how can you explain, how can you account for this? And he says, well, there were maggots on the body, and so the maggots ate the sperm. And the jury bought it. The coroner's report says she hadn't even been raped. Right. So It's just how they found her, and they just went off to that conclusion while she was raped. And the case, they, there is no case. I was, I was getting copies of whatever my lawyer at the time was getting from the crime labs. You know, I had copies of the same thing. I'm like, okay, there's no way they're going to convict me. You know, but it just didn't turn out that way. So you went to trial, and can you explain to us what that was like? I mean, you sit there and you watch as your life falls apart. And there's nothing you can do about it. You're a spectator on the sideline. 
you're now in someone else's life. I mean, who, who, whoever did this was supposed to be sitting in that seat, not me. Now I'm sitting in that seat. So now I'm in this individual's life. have no idea who it is. And it's just, you're speechless. And when the jury went out, did you think for a minute that they would convict you? No, I didn't. I'm like, okay, they see the evidence put in front of them. You know, they're going to look at this and say, okay, there's no way he did this. But it's like they didn't even pay attention to what was being presented. And most juries don't. They don't pay attention to the evidence that's in front of them. Like, like you said, they, they hear a false confession and they think, oh, that's it. Okay, I'm not going to confess to something I didn't do. So obviously he did it. And that's just not true. Right. I, I mean, we know that in the first, uh, what was it, the first 150 DNA exonerations, uh, almost a quarter of them involve false confessions, right? That's how common it is. Right. And the number's just growing. So now we have 365 DNA exonerations, and we're up to 28% have involved uh, false confessions. It is one of the leading causes of wrongful convictions, and yet it's very hard for the public and judges and lawyers even to understand how you would confess to a rape or a murder that you didn't commit. With a false confession, you're almost certain to be convicted, and more often people then will take a guilty plea because the chance of a conviction despite innocence is almost certain. So the jury comes back, and they declare you guilty on all counts. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can't imagine. Well, I mean, there's not a whole lot you can do. Now your life is not yours anymore. You now belong to the state. You are the property of the state. That's why they give you a number. You know, they took me to Angola, took all of my identification, and destroyed it. Everything. Gave me a little prison ID with a prison number on it, and that's it. Put me in the cell. And Angola, just to paint a picture, is formerly a slave plantation. The reason it's called Angola is because the slaves were brought over from Angola. And it was once the bloodiest prison in the country. And there you were. Yeah. How did you deal with it? And how did you even find the strength to survive and ultimately reach out and get a hold of the Innocence Project? And, and you know, how, how are you even here? It's amazing. Well, for the first three years, I contemplated whether or not I wanted to be part of the monkey show. What's the monkey show? The execution. I actually thought about... Um, dropping my appeals and having them carry out the execution and just be done with it. They make a spectacle when they execute someone, as everyone knows. You know, it's all, it's all on the media. You know, it's the taking of a life, and they've turned it into some kind of sport. You know, everybody's like, oh, I can't wait to kill this guy. And I did not want to be part of that. Things are a little different now because now they're looking at things, well, they're trying to look at it more humanely, but it doesn't matter how you kill someone, it's still an inhumane act. And with all the exonerations in the country today, I have to ask the question, how many more is it going to take? Before we abolish it. Before definitely. we abolish it. How many more? You already know you've killed innocent people. How many more? Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs, 
If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. 
I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Twenty-three hours a day, no contact with anyone. Twenty-three hours a day in a cell with no human contact. No. How do you deal with it? How did you deal with it? Like, how did you not lose your mind? You find things to do. Like what? Whatever you can. Play cards, exercise, uh, clean the cell. I actually scrub myself with a toothbrush. Just to stay busy. Just to stay busy. So, ultimately, you ended up somehow or other finding out about the Innocence Project and reaching out. Well. Denise LaBeouf had come to see me one day. This was, you know, long before I had written The Innocence Project. We'll get to that in a minute. And this is the first time I had met Denise. Everyone calls her Denny. I call her Denise. It's a respect thing. I don't know. But she's sitting down in front of me and she's like, okay, look, you didn't do this. I know your first lawyer wasn't all that good, but give me a chance. And from that point on, I made it a point to at least attempt an existence, I suppose, instead of just giving up on it. And, um, you know, I had heard about the Innocence Project, and I actually wrote them a letter. I gave them my lawyer's information, my information, and the case number, and I sent it to them. And I got a response back saying, okay, this is the only correspondence we're going to have, because uh, until they actually pick up a case, that's how it works. Because, you know, obviously there are guilty guys out there who are writing the Innocence Project, trying to find a loophole. And that's the type of letter that I got. Next thing I know, you know, there's this law firm in Minnesota who's down there taking my case. There's the Innocence Project. Barry and Vanessa show up one day, and I'm like, okay. Yeah, what is that like? It's like the Avengers ride again or something, right? Now now you look at it, yeah. <laughs> here comes Thor with the hammer, you know. But still, here I am, what, six, seven years into this death sentence, and it takes another three or four years before they're ready to go talk to the district attorney. You know, Steve calls me, Steve Kaplan, he's one of the lawyers from Fredrickson and Byron who handled my, my case. And he's like, okay, how do you want to do this? You want to just go to court or you, you want to talk to the district attorney? I said, talk to the district attorney first. And everyone was, was against the idea. It's not going to work. You know who he is. He's, he's, he's a product of Paul Connick, and they just want to kill people. And I said, well, what do I have to lose? You know, It's either another 10, 20-year fight or maybe just by luck he'll talk to you. So they set up a meeting, and he agreed to reinvestigate my case. And you were, you were in that meeting? Yeah. So this was, you know, now there's a lot of talk about conviction review units, you know, being established throughout the country. But this was several years ago. And so, you know, we arranged a meeting to go talk to the DA, Paul Connick, and who's the cousin of Harry Connick. So he's the good cousin. And um, he is the DA in Jefferson Parish and, you know, big team there. They had an investigator, Vince Lamy, in the room and... Uh, Steve Wimberly, the first assistant. So they, they assembled a big team, and we basically went through a presentation of the confession, of the timeline, which just 
virtually made it impossible for Damon to have been involved. So when we walked through and we did a presentation, they did acknowledge that there were enough problems in the case that they should undertake an investigation. And it was quite a massive undertaking. Um, Every piece of evidence that existed was sent out for DNA testing. And because he had been arrested that night, they had taken a male rape kit from him. I mean, there was not one piece of physical evidence to suggest that he had anything to do with the crime. And in fact, the victim had been strangled with a piece of wire and um, it had been burned off of a wire that was hanging in a tree. So the perpetrator burned it off and then took it to, to strangle the victim. And we were able to get some blood, some DNA on that wire at the scene that that excluded Damon. So, you know, there was years of a joint reinvestigation with the district attorney's office to get to the point where they acknowledged that Damon was innocent and they had convicted and sent an innocent man to death row. How often is it that a district attorney that's prosecuted a case is the same district attorney that comes back and releases that individual? No, it's... Rare. It's rare. So... Connick did something in Louisiana that was pretty much unheard of, and it could have hurt him. You know, he took that chance to step out there and say, "Okay, wait, we got a problem." I'm glad. I'm glad he got out of his comfort zone and decided to take a step in a new direction. Bean Dad, The Dress, Thirty to Fifty Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. So now comes the the good part of the story, right? The moment, right? When you found out that you were actually going to go home, how did you find out? What was it like? It was a phone call on a Wednesday, I think it was. Everything was agreed to. They had set something up to have the judge and the district attorney sign everything, but the thing they, they were trying to get everything done before Friday because that's when the prison offices closed. So this was all done on a Friday and they had everything faxed over to the prison and the sergeant comes down to the to the cell he says pack your stuff you're going home but first we have to take you over to the hospital to have you checked out so i i, I mean i'm i'm in a full jumpsuit and chains and i go to the hospital and the ranking officer there is like why is he in a jumpsuit and chains where's his property well he's it's everything's back at the cell well he's going home he's 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 not supposed to be going back so they have to take me back to death row take me out of the jumpsuit and I got to put my clothes on and grab my stuff. So, you know, it's kind of, it's not real until you walk out the gate. And after you worked on this case for all those years, what was it like for you? Well, um, it was amazing. I personally wasn't there because I was basically nine months pregnant and I couldn't get on a plane. So I missed that moment of seeing Damon. Um, but it was, you know, Barry Sheck was there Steve Kaplan from the law firm, Denny LaBeouf from the Capital Resource Center in Louisiana. And it just, you know, I don't even know what the estimate is of Steve's hours. Steve, I mean, he, he was so instrumental in helping me out while, while I was there and post-release. He helped me out in ways that, you know, you just can't repay. You know, this man, he flew down here and drove me back 
to Minnesota because I had decided to move to Minnesota after I was released to start things over. And I lived with him until November of that year, got my own place. And he actually, the Innocence Project helped me get a car, uh, helped me with my rent, and Steve helped me out with that as well. And, you know, I can't repay him for what he's done. So, Damon, I have to ask you, and it's beautiful to hear you say that. Um, have you been compensated? No. So you've gotten nothing? I've gotten nothing. There is current litigation. Um, right, but, it's, you know, you're having to make ends meet on, on your own. Yeah. I mean, if I don't do nothing, I'm going to lose my mind, you know. There are things I want to do, places I want to go, you know. I like that juicy steak, you know, uh, I, but you got to pay for it. <laughs> right, so you're out there. So, you know, I'm out there doing my job, and, you know, if it comes through, then hey, I'm all for it. But if not, then, you know, I've got a job to do. So, look, I, I think, Damon, it's a, it's a terrible story. It's a remarkable story. You're a remarkable guy. You're out there now driving a truck and living life and seeing the country and experiencing freedom, and that's awesome, and we're really proud of you. And now uh, we get to uh, my favorite part of the show, which is that I actually get to stop talking and just listen. And so before I do that, I want to thank you both again for coming and, and being on the show. Um, Vanessa Potkin, uh, senior staff attorney at the Innocence Project, badass lawyer and human being, and, uh, and Damon Thibodeau, uh, death row exoneree and inspirational character. So um, I think we're going to save the best for last, and that's you, Damon. So uh, with all due respect, we're going to turn it over to you, Vanessa, for your closing thoughts. Well, we've talked about you know the number of people in prison and the U.S. leading in terms of our prison population, leading the world, um, and you know when it comes to and what the error rates are and how many people that means are innocent in prison today. And when you take a look just at death row in itself, we have about 2,700 people on death row. There have been conservative estimates that 4, 4.1% of people on death row are actually innocent. And so that would mean there are 109 people incarcerated today on death row facing execution um, for crimes that they didn't commit. Damon? Well, um, you know, be, being where I am now, as opposed to where I was six years ago, you know, a lot of guys in my position, they don't have anything when they walk out. And it's sometimes years before they get compensation. I had a lot of help getting where I am. You know, the reason why I'm driving a truck is because I met a guy at the uh, Minneapolis Auto Show. Uh, a guy named Bill Collins runs a truck driving school. Uh, he was, you know, at the auto show, he drives you know, stock cars as well as a hobby. And he asked me one day, he said, what do you think about driving a truck? And uh, I said, it's okay. He said, uh, well, I want to pay for you to go through my school and get your CDL. I'm sitting here thinking, okay, I have the Innocence Project doing this. I have Steve doing this. Now here's this guy here. He's, he's offering to pay for me to go to school to get this license. You know, here, here I am today. I'm pretty much paid to see the country, you know, but it takes a lot to give someone their life back. And I don't mean life as breathing. I mean, we walk out, we have no job, we have no social security, we have no retirement, we, have, we don't have a license, we don't have an ID. I had to fight to get my birth certificate with my name on it. And if not for the Innocence Project and other lawyers involved, then... 
I don't know where I'd be right now. More programs need to be put in place for exonerees because someone who actually gets out on parole has more resources at their disposal than someone like myself. And, you know, that should not be the case. You know, being where I am now is, is it's a blessing, you know, and uh, coming from where I've been, Wilbert Redu said it best. My worst day out here is better than my best day in prison. So I thank, I thank everybody for helping me out. Every day I try. <laughs> I try every day to do it right, so. Don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps. And I'm a proud donor to the Innocence Project, and I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause and helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. Go to innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall and Kevin Wardis. The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer, Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at wrongfulconviction and on Facebook at wrongfulconvictionpodcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Company Number One. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Hi, listener. I'm Carol Fisher, the host of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister. I'm so excited for you to hear the brand new season where we're uncovering a 35-year-old mystery. But for those of you who didn't hear season one or just want to listen to it again, you can now get access to all episodes of that first season of The Girlfriends 100% ad-free through the iHeart True Crime Plus subscription, which is available exclusively on Apple Podcasts. 
You'll also get access to every single episode of The Girlfriends, our lost sister, ad-free and one week early, only available to iHeart True Crime Plus subscribers. So what are you waiting for? Head to Apple Podcasts, search for iHeart True Crime Plus, and subscribe today. 